Greetings, everyone. This is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Chointcast, interviews and short stories from across the world that connect us with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. Chointcast 8 showcases one of the finest examples of leadership, program management, and innovation you may not know about. We'll meet Daryl Hillis, who, as a Motorola Senior Vice President, had responsibility for the research, design, and development of advanced communication and electronic systems for a host of domestic and international commercial users, the National Aeronautic and Space Administration, or NASA, the Department of Defense, and a variety of other local and national government agencies. Our joint cast focuses on the story of the Iridium Global Satellite Telecommunication Systems, as told in Durrell's book, creating Iridium. Dural is or has served as a member of Greater Phoenix Leadership, Valley of the Sun United Way Campaign Cabinet, the Board of Governors of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Scottsdale, Arizona State University Engineering Dean's Advisory Council, and numerous other roles. He is also a very dear personal friend and colleague. It's great to be talking with you again, Dural. I've been, I've been looking forward to not only your creation of the book creating uh, iridium which you know which you, you talked about for quite a while but now your opportunity to to share it with everybody welcome welcome to the joint cast Earl. Thanks, Jim. Great to talk to you. For our audience just for disclosure purposes Dural Hillis served as the chairman of the board of Innovative Systems and Technologies Corporation or Insight for short for about 5 years prior to the company sale in 2006 so we we know each other quite well. I think so. I think that we know each other better than maybe some family members in my case. We, we, we probably do. Um, and before we launch into, into your book, Creating Iridium Dural, I want to I want to elicit a thought from you just from some of our recent discussions. Given your accomplished technical career, it'd be easy to believe you're an advocate that everyone yeah. goes to college. But that's not exactly the case. Can you share some of your recent thoughts about that with us? I think uh, we don't have to uh, look very far to see uh, how successful the system can be where everyone is expected to go to college. You just have to look at uh, various countries in Europe where uh, going, not going to college is perfectly acceptable uh, and uh, they teach trades uh, there, some even in high school, as well as uh, a college-type uh, situation where people end up in, with uh, jobs and trades that are highly respectable. Um, I think it's unfortunate that in this country, uh, you know, parents seem to have the attitude that my child must go to college. And so many of these uh uh, kids that go are not prepared, are not motivated for whatever reason, and they drop out. And this is a tremendous waste in terms of the educational system in the United States. I don't have the numbers, but studies have been done that about how much money is wasted just due to the dropout rate where you have to staff up for these kids and then uh, uh, fairly significant percentage nationwide don't ever get out of college and then they consider themselves a failure and it can be a stigma that's attached by our society which is unfortunate so I think the idea that every kid needs to go to college is just uh, false and but it needs a change in our culture 
and a change uh, which would provide uh, the type of training that would allow non-college kids to uh, have good jobs and contribute to society. You know, it's interesting, Daryl, you're not the only uh, executive who's who's voiced that recently, and it seems to be um, a more recurring theme. So hopefully hopefully, you're not the only one in a position of influence who's going to be able to do something about that. And speaking of looking at things from a different point of view, I've always found your Iridium story or the Iridium story at large uh, a story of leadership as much as, as, as technical innovation. And that's part of the focus. It was a focus of my review, and I want it to be also a, a focus of, of our joint cast today. Again, Daryl Hillis, the author of Creating Iridium, which can be found on Amazon. So just to start, Daryl, uh, let's, let's not assume knowledge that our audience has. What briefly is Iridium to the layperson? Well, Iridium, uh, in, its, in its summary statement, would be it's a global space-based network that provides two-way communication for data and voice with handheld cellular-type units. It, has, uh, it covers the entire globe, uh, no matter where you're on the ocean, uh, at the poles, wherever you have global coverage and you can, with a handheld unit, uh, communicate with anyone else on Earth uh, that has access to some other communication device or regular uh, commercial uh, communications. Uh, it has, was started with a more emphasis on voice than data, although it had uh, paging, which now you just call texting, uh, capability as well. The expansion of, of applications for Iridium has been dramatic, and now it's uh, being used for uh, many uh, things that require global tracking, uh, as an example. And one of the more exciting applications that is now being, um, it, there's now intended to be implemented by the FAA is to use Iridium network to track real-time uh, every aircraft in the sky worldwide. Uh, that will not only be, provide a safety uh, advantage, but it will allow uh, a more uh, direct routing of planes so they don't have to waste fuel and create congestion uh, by the current system where they have to uh, go cross-country, for example, and check in at various places like Albuquerque, et cetera. Uh, so by direct routing and by uh, knowledge of where every aircraft is in the sky, we will also um, improve safety even with the higher density of aircraft in total. So that's an exciting application, but there are many applications uh, that people might not think of. And uh, the, uh, the CEO of, of the current Iridium Corporation was kind enough to write a forward and an epilogue in the book, Creating Iridium, where in the epilogue he discusses uh, all these varied applications of Iridium <clears throat> that are not are not that well-known. But uh, another notable one is in the major uh, disasters that have occurred around the world, whether it be the uh, meltdown in, in uh, Japan or whether it be earthquakes or floods or hurricanes, 
in those cases, iridium in, in many places and many times have been the only form of communications because even cell towers have been wiped out and flooded and uh, iridium is, is a life-saving type of service for that. Fantastic. Now that we've got a little idea of what iridium is, I, I get the, in, the impression sometimes when I think about iridium that nobody under the age of 30 had probably ever ever heard of it, maybe not even under the age of 40. But what 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 happened that allowed this to occur? You called it a historical perfect storm. Can you set that up for us? Certainly. Um, well, at, at the time uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, um, I was the uh, general manager of what amounted to the space division for Motorola. And at the time, uh, we were a subcontractor to uh, large uh, space com companies like Lockheed and at that time Martin and GE. And uh, uh, there were about 10 major companies in the world uh, building spacecraft, etc. But we were providing what was uh, the most uh, difficult and creative uh, technology for those things that would be called payloads, that is the part of the spacecraft that was there to perform a specific mission, whether it be reconnaissance satellites or whatever. And we had that competence, but we were always a subcontractor uh, to these large companies and uh, only got a little small piece of the pie. Now, during that time, uh, a number of things happened in a perfect storm sort of way uh, with convergence in a very narrow time window of just a few years. Uh, we had the fall of the Berlin Wall, which really uh, triggered capitalism really around the world in many cases uh, that uh, uh, people to and companies and governments uh, to invest in new technology that before was totally controlled by an uh, autocratic government. Uh, at that time, cellular had started to take off, and there was a global demand for more communication. It also happened to be a time when, for a variety of reasons, the space business in the United States, and in Europe for that matter, was at a really low point where... The, there were empty factories, uh, people being laid off, et cetera. So uh, people, organizations uh, like uh, uh, Lockheed or Boeing or uh, uh, Martin or GE or the Europeans, uh, British Aerospace, et cetera, were eager to participate in the Iridium program where at any other point in time they would not have been uh, that uh, eager to do it if they'd been busy. In particular, uh, the demands we put on these people to be able to participate could only have happened during that time where they really badly needed business. Uh, at that time also, it was uh, uh, Motorola itself was a pretty much a roaring success. It was, had a dominant share of the paging market, of the cellular market, and uh, it had the uh, wide coverage because of its two-way radio business, which had been around for decades as being the primary supplier for to uh, military, uh, police, firemen, etc., two-way radio. So Motorola had a, a global presence and uh, an outstanding image at that time. 
that allowed it to attract investors to the program and also uh, had enough pockets to be a major contributor financially. Uh, during that same time, there was a conference called the World Administrative Radio Conference, which only occurs every four years. And in 1992, it happened to fit perfectly in the time frame of the Iridium program uh, that allowed uh, us to, after after a couple of years of lobbying governments and companies around the world, allowed us to go to that month-long conference in Spain and obtain the frequencies that were necessary for Iridium to operate. Uh, any any uh, period of time before that or after that would not have been possible for us to obtain those frequencies. And perhaps the most important of all this convergence is we were we had just uh, finished up our role in the Advanced Communication Technology Satellite Program from the where we were building the critical uh, technology that allowed for uh, placing what you might call a switchboard in the sky. So this switching technology that allowed us to create a network of interlinked satellites and communicate with the ground uh, was enabled by our technology from the ACTS program and by the people who were on it, who had this particular expertise, that we apply directly and bring them over into the Iridium program to provide that knowledge. Uh, so these are, and there are two or three other things, but there were quite a number of things that happened during a narrow window of time, any one of which uh, would have prevented Iridium from occurring had it not occurred and had it not occurred during that particular narrow time window. That's a pretty amazing coincidence, Durrell. It's, you know, showcasing Iridium's numerous technical breakthroughs is, is very, very tempting, and I, I commend our audience to, to, to read the book to get some of those details. But without leadership, it seems the original brainstorming team you put together wouldn't have even formed, much less have been nurtured. You, you actually published a leadership vision of Iridium in, uh, in the New York Times on 18 June 1990. Why did you do that, and what happened afterward? Well, it was an opportunity. It was a promotional opportunity, of course, because we that was the week that we announced the formation of Iridium. And uh, so it was important to get the attention of the, of the world on this uh, new emerging system and to attract investors uh, to uh, give the technical community an opportunity to see we were doing, and uh, so that particular uh, that particular interview was a promotional interview. But what we uh, what we did on the Iridium program, uh, I had uh, I had had a, a broad uh, educational background, and and uh, been involved in the seminars as well as uh, of the company as well as space. And had a had a, a pretty good idea of how we could use Motorola's technology uh, across the corporation to pull this thing off. But the real uh, the things that I, I felt were were major obstacles to success were really not the technical ones because we 
uh, did uh, to, went to great lengths to use technology that already uh, been proven to a large extent, so we were not inventing multiple things at the same time in the program. Uh, but the, as you said, the, the thing that I think the book uh, talks more about than technology are the things that might be under the under the label of leadership and project management, because you have if you stop and say, okay, well we have this idea. It's a very clever, amazing idea, uh, and so we're going to try to use proven technologies. But how do we raise the money, which is amounts to billions of dollars, uh, without any government? subsidies, guarantees, or otherwise. And at the time, the money, the initial money we raised of $3.5 billion and the total cost of the program, including the Iridium Corporation and all of its management and marketing costs, was about $5 billion. Never uh, in history had, had that much money been raised without some form of government backing, or insurance or some other uh, mechanism to allow that kind of money to be made. So it was very important that we marketed this thing to the world in a way that it would capture the imagination of investors. Back to the, the, the uh, challenge, you have to stop and say, now what do we do? Uh, now that it, let's assume we get the money, let's assume we get to the frequencies. Let's assume that we are able to solve all the technology problems. Uh, how do we actually do this? Uh, I had a starting point of 20 people uh, when we started the program. There were 15 people in this uh, incubator group that came up with the idea, but when we actually started to do the Iridium program, and I was asked to step out of my job and lead this effort, we had 20 people to do a multi-billion dollar program uh, ended up involving 29 contractors and uh, 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 from around the world, major software as well as hardware issues with 20 million code, etc. How do we pull this off? How do we, uh, you know, how do we uh, capture enough talent, how do we uh, get enough people involved to do this, and how do we, what does Motorola do, and what do our contractors do? Let me interrupt you real quick here, because let's take both of those in turn, all right? Let's take both Motorola at large, and then also the the contractor relationships, and I think this is a, a huge lesson as as we think how difficult it is in let's say a military procurement environment today it seems sometimes that we we, we can't seem to get anything done you, you you described essentially using all of the resources of Motorola I think that was a keen insight into what was into accomplishing what was possible so how, how did a, a person such as John Mitchell help you in a leadership role to be able to do something like that well John was critical to the success of the program uh, Bob Galvin who was retiring as a board chairman at the time uh, the Iridium the, the idea was, was approved for uh, to pursue and John Mitchell was the just retired president of the corporation and Bob Galvin uh, gave his approval for the program 
John if he would be what might be called the godfather of the program or what I would call the corporate enabler who made sure that whatever we needed from the corporation would be made available to us. And that was that was an indispensable, really indispensable uh, move and shrewd thing for Bob Galvin to do because he was a great believer in the program to the extent that he told John that if uh, if the corporation didn't want to fund the initial amount of money uh, that I asked for for some studies of like $6 million, if John thought it, the corporation uh, wasn't appropriate for the corporation at that point in time to fund the program, that he himself, Bob Galvin, write a personal check for the $6 million. So he was that... Uh, he was that, uh, you know, excited about the program and asked John to do whatever it took within the corporation to make sure that we got supported. So that was from the corporate side. Now, from the supplier side, the contractor side, there were some serious issues associated with how do you get uh, contractors who have been working their, you know, their whole existence on government contracts to come in and do what was what was a commercial, purely commercial program, uh, where uh, the old rules didn't have to be followed, in many cases couldn't be followed, and uh, avoid the typical government situation of major cost overruns and uh, schedule uh, impacts due to change orders. When you when you start off to do something as complicated as iridium, you know that it's impossible to define a, an adequate set of specifications that could be written down and handed as a stack of documents to these contractors in order to get the job done. So we knew that that whole queue of specifications would be an evolving issue. So we had to come up with a way to uh, control, if I can use that term, the subcontractor uh, relationship to ensure that the program didn't get hung up with all these delays and cases. Because first of all, the government there was no government backing, so it's not like a government space program where the government gets, you know, gets sort of pregnant, if you will, with the program, and then when the cost and schedule impacts her, they're sort of committed to funding it. Uh, even if they're not happy with how they got there. Well, in a commercial enterprise, you know, you are committed to achieving the uh, result for the for the cost that's agreed to because the commercial uh, people will stop their funding and just bail out if you're not performing. So we had to we had to figure out a way to deal with that issue. Uh, so there were a couple of key things that allowed us to, allowed us to pull that off. Uh, first of all, in order to be, uh, for example, the bus contractor, and the bus is the part of the spacecraft that carries the payload to perform its mission. So the bus included, you know, the solar panels, the structure, the propulsion systems, etc. That about ten companies in the world knew how to do that. Well, um, the thing that we knew how to do, of course, was the payload that I described earlier, uh, the X program, ACTS, enabled us 
to build a switching type global network uh, and we would then had the ability to contract with established uh, suppliers to provide what in total what might be called the bus so we did we were committed to do the payload and the system design uh, and about 80% of the actual dollars were to contractors outside the corporation to do what we uh, we call the easy part of the program. Easy only because this, it uh, involved technologies and and procedures that these companies were had been doing for many years and knew how to do. Uh, we were doing the most difficult part of it, and we felt that uh, we had to do that in-house. We couldn't subcontract any part of that. So I had a simple rule, and it was that we will do nothing in-house unless we must for strategic reasons. So that uh, I wanted to keep away from the temptation of guys saying, well, we don't need to go to Lockheed or Boeing or whoever to get this done. We know how to do that. Well, if it wasn't strategically important, I said, no, you're going to go there. We're not going to be sidetracked uh, by getting into things that other people can do. So we're going to do only what we have to do and only what on we are the ones capable of doing. Uh, and include in that the overall uh, system design and control of the system concept and contract out the rest of this stuff. So that allowed us then to proceed uh, with the program without having to wait until we had some big experienced staff to do all these things that other people already knew how to do. And at the, by the end of the program, we had about 2,000 people in Motorola involved, and there were 6,000 people involved in subcontractors. And, and roughly that proportion uh, or more, actually, if you include the launch cost, uh, probably 80% of the cost of the program was uh, from uh, contractors. So given that uh, conclusion that we were going to do only the things that we had to do for strategic reasons that we must control directly, uh, we were able then to draw on their experience, their people, and ask them to do a couple of things if they were serious about being in the program. Because we did not want partners, we wanted true partners. We did not want partners that viewed this as an opportunistic program to just make some money. We wanted partners that shared our strategic view of what Iridium could do and, and, and what as a program it offered them in their corporations to learn how to do things in a more commercial way because they didn't know how to do that. They'd been operating with the government so long uh, that they had no experience with commercial processes. So we said, okay, if you want to be like the bus contractor or one of the other key contractors, you, you're going to have to demonstrate buy-in in the program. And specifically what that meant was during a period of about two years before we obtained the licenses for frequencies from the World Administrative Communication conference, uh, the, uh, this would have been like 1990 when we started interviewing contractors, uh, and we didn't have the actual contract signed for a couple of years after. 
During that period, we required these key contractors to send their people to Chandler, Arizona, where the Motorola team was located, and participate as a team in the overall system design and the key technical parameters that had to be accomplished. So they were required to send their people at their cost at total risk on their part because when it came time to actually sign a contract, uh, they had to meet the uh, cost requirement had we not been successful with those. So they not only then had to uh, get, put their key people in place and spend the money for a couple of years uh, doing a total team design, but they also were required to invest directly money in the Iridium program. So we wanted as much skin in the game as we could possibly get from those contractors so they would be motivated to make them successful, not just that they could make some money on the program by suboptimizing their own piece of it. Uh, so that's, uh, that was critical, and we came to those conclusions. And in order to overcome the – so that's, that's solved the people problem of how do you ramp up a program. Uh, I say solved the problem. We were able to attract an amazingly talented series of people from across the country and to work on the Iridium program because of the the challenge and the the ability to do something that people said couldn't be done, and that attracted really the best and the brightest people that came from some from the space world, some uh, from cellular communications, some with uh, major software capabilities, uh, system design, uh, physicists, all of these kind of people were anxious to work on the reading program. So the Motorola team was just extremely competent and really total first-class group of people. So given that and given the way we were able to leverage the uh, prime and subcontractors on the program, we were able to handle the staffing problem. The next issue we had to address was how do we avoid the thing that kills programs in the military and uh, industrial complex where the since they can't define things exactly uh, as the program goes along they have to m uh, make changes here and there to uh, to make sure they get the job done and every time there's a change the contractors would stop and say uh oh well we'll be happy to do this once we negotiate what the change is but of course you recognize that you got to pay us more and it's going to delay the schedule. Typical change order. Yes. Those things would totally kill the program before it really got off the ground. So the idea I came up with to deal with that is a sort of uh, modification of what the, one of the government contracting types is, and it's called an old fee. This was actually, these were actually fixed-price contracts where we negotiated a, a fixed-price uh, to accomplish the task that each of them were given. But I'd set aside a, a pool of money, uh, like $40 million, as uh, what I called uh, success fees that could be awarded during a portion of it during the uh, performance of the contract and anything that was left over at the end of the contract, assuming success at the end. 
And along with this, uh, the way the money was given out is every three months we would have a meeting, face-to-face meeting with the key people on from each of these major contractors and say, okay, now here's what we need from you during this three months. Here's where we need your cooperation. Here's the kind of problems that we need to solve. And so every three months we would measure them on the degree to which they had contributed to the program by cooperating on getting the job done. And because these award fees historically had been reviewed at the CEO level of these major contractors, it had great visibility within the corporation uh, to the extent that there were a couple of situations where uh, two different contractors uh, failed to do what they should have done during a given period, and we gave them zero score. And that went to their CEOs, and they actually replaced the program manager on the program as a result. So they took it that seriously. And amazingly, uh, this worked far beyond what I had anticipated to the point where uh, for this entire uh, program of uh, you know billions and billions of dollars, uh, we had not one single change order that was initiated by the contractors. The change orders that were initiated, they were initiated by uh, Motorola uh, to uh, perform what needed to be performed. But as far as an increase uh, in the budget or change in the schedule as a result of these changes, there were zero. Just, just absolute sort of miracle that occurred. And uh, that, you know, the program couldn't have happened without that kind of performance because uh, if you'd start start changing the estimated cost or the schedule in the program, the investors would have just said, I'm not sending bad money after good, and they would have dropped out and the program would have died immediately. So that was really critical that we found a way uh, to manage a program so that the key people involved as contractors to Motorola were highly motivated to make the program successful instead of just making their own piece of the program successful. You know, it's it's hard to think, Daryl, of, a, of an example of a combination of leadership and program management than, than what you just outlined. You know, in, interestingly, and you, you probably read it also, General Stanley McChrystal, you know, just in the past couple of years wrote wrote the landmark book, uh, Team of Teams, which 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 I reviewed, and I, maybe I'll be able to get him on a podcast one of these days. But it sure sounds to me, especially when you told that, that part about team accountability, you, you were really doing Team of Teams long before it became this recent catchphrase. It, it, it wasn't just the technical pioneering. It was the leadership and program management as well. Uh, one more, one more question. Uh, well, let me let me interrupt just a moment, Jim. Sure. Uh, 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 to illustrate that point, uh, in the beginning of the program and for a period of about two years, I was so concerned about anything bureaucratic uh, getting uh, into the program, and people in Motorola who viewed this as a major opportunity to to enhance their careers and look for pow- do uh, uh, any kind of power plays. For two years, I 
uh, did not allow an organization chart to exist. And the reason was I didn't want people to be focused on what their job title was and be jockeying for a position or being sub-optimizing the program within Motorola. So we had, and it was called that then, we said, I said, we are going to have a team of teams. We're going to create teams where we need to accomplish a task. When that task is accomplished, that team could be disbanded, and we're going to have an entire organization composed of teams that uh, will uh, mean that individuals will be working on multiple teams. Uh, they'll lead some. They'll participate in others. Uh, the teams, the, this is a major success factor. The individual teams were held accountable for performance. They were empowered to do whatever it took to perform. They were self-managed. We had almost no personnel issues because the teams themselves uh, would take whatever steps necessary uh, within their own team to make sure that everyone was that was on the team was performing, and if not, they'd help them find another place to go. Uh, so you had an accountability that could not be uh, achieved any other way, and that the individual teams, at the end of the program, there was a, a line in my book where one of the uh, segment managers uh, at that time, because we did divide the program into segments, but he asked people uh, uh, if uh, they thought that during the program that would succeed. And one gentleman says, you know, there were many, many times that I questioned whether, whether we could succeed in doing this total program, but I knew that if we did not succeed, it would not be because of my team and had that kind of attitude that these people would work 60, 80, some 100 hours a week for years to make sure their team performed. And uh, that was just an amazing uh, demonstration of how committed people can be when they have a passion uh, and a vision for something that they're just totally uh, commit to, committed to. You know, it's interesting. You, By the way, you, you answered my, my last question because I did want to talk about autonomy and accountability, Daryl, but uh, you answered it better without me framing the question. I, I, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fantastic story, but if you think about how, how much your team had to be let go and the attendant autonomy that, that came from that, my, my guess is this, this might have been the most autonomous proje project you ever encountered, yet the accountability just based on the teams, not through heavy-handed top-down management, uh, allowed for each team to take care of itself. Absolutely. Um, I think I mentioned, maybe even mentioned in the book, as I was interviewing people for to uh, in preparation to write the book, uh, I discovered that about 80% of the stories that I heard from people in the interviews about things that appeared to be impossible to, to accomplish. The, the teams found some way to solve the problem and, and uh, keep going. And I would say 80% of those things that happened during the programs, I had no idea occurred. They all occurred almost like it was a daily occurrence or a weekly occurrence 
to have a showstopper somewhere, and the teams would not even raise it to management, uh, what would might be considered management or leadership, uh, the leadership team, because they were committed to solving the problem, and they'd just work whatever hours or how long or bring in whatever resources uh, that it took to solve the problem. And that was an amazing insight to me uh, uh, when I was preparing to write the book of, of just how effective the teams were that, uh, and how autonomous they were and how effective it was to empower the teams to just do it and hold them accountable. Well, what a great encapsulation, Durrell. Again, for those of you who aren't familiar with the, with the book, it's Creating Iridium by Durrell Hillis, probably the, the, the best leadership and project management manifesto of at least a generation. I encourage you to do that. Um, thank you so much for this, for this joint cast, Durrell, and an opportunity to share your wonderful story. Well, thank you, Jim. It's, uh, it's a privilege to do that, and uh, I appreciate being involved. Thank you for listening today. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E, and visit www.choink.com to sign up for an upcoming Academy Leadership Excellence course and to support one of our worthy causes, such as Autism Speaks Walk.